guests always say the most interesting thing right before you hit record, and then they get really boring because they know they're being recorded. So the trick is to just leave it recording from the beginning. And then like about 15 minutes in, they'll say, oh, are we going to start recording? You know, and then it's too late. They already said the interesting thing. Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome again to Just Sustainability, curious conversations about sustainability, equity, and social justice. this week's episode of Just Sustainability, we get to meet Dr. Ian Warkheiser. I suspect that though Ian would be far too humble to describe himself as such, he's one of the most innovative environmental philosophers currently working in the field. His work helps us think more clearly and with more nuance about how to approach sustainability in a way that is more equitable and humane. He's also the creator and host of Thought About Food, which is one of the very best philosophy podcasts out there. If you're interested about food justice, food sovereignty, or just food more generally, you should give his podcast a listen. Anyhow, enough of me telling you about Ian. Here's how Ian describes himself. Good. So you always ask people who Ian Workheiser is. I think that I appreciate that. Yeah, I, everyone should know and everyone should have uh, an idea of who Ian Workheiser is. When, I, when I'm not in the room, people should be saying, where's Ian? What's Ian doing right now? I agree. Um, so I'm an associate professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. Um, and I'm director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Uh, I work on a lot of issues, um, including environmental philosophy, philosophy of technology, uh, particularly, I mean, sort of moving in that direction right now, uh, philosophy of food and epistemology, which is, uh, for our listeners, the philosophy of knowledge, basically. Um, and I always take a strong justice component in my work. I'm always looking at sort of justice issues within all of those areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you know, I also have a podcast, Thought About Food, which interviews people about various issues in food and food studies. I recently interviewed a handsome and intelligent guest named Clement Liu, uh, which I'm excited about <laughs> putting that episode out later. Uh, and then, uh, you know, other than that, I love to cook, uh, bake. Uh, I even brew beer when I have the time. Uh, and I'm a dad, so I've spent the last year helping my kids with remote elementary school while also teaching my classes. So, um, you know, there hasn't been a lot of time for sleep or, you know, any any of the other things that people say are important. I was going to say sleep is overrated, but I don't want to make that joke because I'm always trying to tell my students they need to sleep more. So, uh, yeah, sleep is actually appropriately rated or maybe underrated. <laughs> I think underrated in our society. Sleep is deeply important, but yeah. I I don't know how to do it. Regular listeners to the show are probably aware that I have a tendency to take conversations off on tangents, or in the words of Hyde Erdrich, go on mental walks through the woods. Normally, it takes me a bit of time to do that. However, in my conversation with Ian, I sort of took a jaunt to the left field almost immediately and asked him to talk about why he thought so many philosophers who are interested in environmental justice have been writing about technology lately. I should note that I'm not actually sure that there's a real trend of uh, philosophers doing that, but it is a trend amongst the folks that I've read a lot. Anyways, here's Ian telling me about why he thinks philosophers concerned about environmental justice might also be interested in thinking about the relationship between humans and technology. Um, I'm going to go a little off script, right? So I sent you some questions ahead of time or things that I was thinking about, but something you said made me just sort of, you know just sort of rang some bells in my head, which is that you were starting to think more about like philosophy of technology. Now I noticed mm-hmm. a lot of the, the folks I know who think a lot about like environment and particularly like kind of with a justice bet have been thinking more about uh, philosophy of technology. So I, right. So I've never actually really thought about philosophy of technology. So I guess the question is what's the, the thing that resonates with folks like with that sort of 
uh, environmental justice bent to start thinking about uh, philosophy of technology? So technology is obviously an important component uh, for thinking through environmental issues in a bunch of ways, right? right? So some people are interested in uh, the impacts of modern technology on the actual environment. You know, uh, if you do environmental justice, for example, uh, you're not trying to think about pristine wildernesses, you know, with wolves and moose and stuff as much as you are about the actual environments that people live in. And the environments that we live in now are ones that are suffused with technology. Um, And so you can be concerned with waste uh, of you know, all of these cool gadgets we have um, and the disparate harms that are affecting, you know, third world countries that take apart old computers, uh, you know, often child labor. There's some really interesting videos uh, that Greenpeace actually made about that that you can go watch if you want to depress yourself. Right. Um, so, you know, you can be concerned about that. You could be concerned about how um, different environmental or different technological access uh, can affect our ability to participate fully in making environmental decisions. There's lots of different directions you can go. For me, uh, the project that I'm uh, working on I just hosted a uh, conference on this topic. I'm editing a special issue of a journal. So if this comes out pretty quickly, uh, if anyone wants to submit to that, uh, just Google my name and you can find it uh, for Digital Worlds for the journal Techne. And I'm also writing a book proposal. Um, And what I'm doing is looking at uh, the technology of sort of virtual reality, mixed reality, augmented reality, all those sorts of ways that Mm -hmm. virtual sorts of digital worlds, I guess, uh, mix with our own and make new worlds. And I'm thinking through the environment and I'm thinking through that environment, right? So to what extent can the tools of environmental philosophy, especially environmental justice, apply to this environment, right? A, a partly virtual environment. Right. Um, and, you know, there's a bunch of different issues around that, but I think that that's uh, in the same way that uh, not just thinking about unspoiled wilderness, whatever that means, is should be the point of environmental philosophy. You should also think about agricultural, rural areas. You should think about urban areas. You should think about our work environments, right? All those kinds of things. I think also we should think about uh, these kinds of quasi-real environments that we spend so much of our time in. Right. I mean, another answer to your question is that uh, everybody's thinking more about, every philosopher is thinking more about philosophy of technology because they're engaging with technology they don't understand very well um, all the time because of the pandemic. And when philosophers are confronted with things they don't understand very well, they start doing philosophy about it. Right. Even from the experience of like the students I work with, it, it's clear to me that there's disparities to access to uh, internet and there's disparities to access to like hardware that's necessary for, uh, you know, engaging fully. So distrib- so there's different kinds of justice um, sort of in the framework that I usually use. I'm, I draw heavily on Robert Figueroa's ideas about environmental justice. Uh, so, you know, there's uh, distributive issues like that, right? So who has access to technology, um, not only in the sense of uh, who can afford it, obviously that's really important, but also who has the skills to use it, you know, digital native kind of issues. Um, and the way in which that that you know, that those skills uh, can transfer, you know, like in terms of schooling, if you want to focus on our students, um, you know, it's, there's a lot of evidence uh, coming out. And we've done a great natural experiment for the last year and a half. So I bet a bunch more studies are going to come out soon, uh, that some people do really well in virtual classes, and other people do very poorly. And it seems like um, that is lined up with people who have soft academic skills, and are from uh, more wealthy backgrounds where they had more exposure to technology as kids. So if uh-huh. you had lots of expensive toys as kids, if you had an iPhone early, and if your parents went to college, so you're good at um, skills like time management and um, you know staying on top of homework, that kind of thing, um, you know, reaching out to teachers if you have a question, stuff like that, then you fl- you can flourish in uh, remote and asynchronous and virtual classes. Uh, but if 
you don't have those things, you were already uh, at risk when you came into college. Um, you know, a real problem with university education, I think, is that we don't do a good job of supporting people who come in without all of those skills, right? Um, right. And that is, it looks like from the data that I've seen, that's increased. So it's more of a problem to not have soft academic skills when you move to remote classes. You're going to have a wider disparity in outcome uh, in right. terms of people getting A's versus people dropping out. Um, and to the extent that we, uh, I think, ought to have a commitment to supporting our students, to holding them when they come in and you know giving them the tools that they need, uh, and in my opinion, not just focusing on their lacks uh, or strengths, but also how we can reform our university to fit them, to fit the you know emerging students that are coming in. Uh, to the extent that that's true, we need to really take that seriously when we're thinking about um, virtual course design, right? Whether or not. I mean, certainly you wouldn't want that to be the only thing available, although that was sort of forced on us for a while, but that was an emergency situation. Right. But as we come back to it, you're going to want a lot of in-person classes. But also, as we're designing virtual classes, we want to think about ways that we can scaffold students, that we can help them, that we are not, whether we're making minimal technology requirements, that kind of thing. So that's one sort of uh, issue, like this distributive sort of thing. And a little bit that gets towards participatory justice, right? People's ability mm -hmm. to participate fully, um, you know, especially when you're looking at skills that people have to use it, right? Um, right. You know, there's, uh, you know, but there's some other senses that I'm kind of interested in that I've been working on with this, like, uh, for example, um, for the first, uh, if you think about like our extended mind, right, that we have this ability to sort of use the world around us to help us think, right? Like Google. Letting yeah, exactly. Right. Well, yeah. So originally that was using uh, stuff in the real world, but increasingly that's becoming something that's online. Right. <clears throat> right. And so again, we get distributive justice impacts. People are just in a sense smarter or have a bigger brain if they have nice technology. Right. Right. Um, in that, you know, you can quickly look things up, but also for the first time, big aspects of our cognition are being offloaded onto for private or for-profit companies right? rather than writing things down in a notebook who can you know, privatize that and turn it into something. And um, it's, it, it's giving us tools, which can be quite useful, but they are tools that other people thought of for thinking that, that are being given to us mm -hmm. rather than our own kind of idiosyncratic um, associations we might make, you know, like I like to go for a walk to think or take a shower. You know, you might make a particular drawing on a whiteboard that helps you think in a particular way, right? There's lots of ways you can manipulate the real world around you um, that aren't affordances put into it in advance by engineers, but are just sort of things that you and the environment interacting right. kind of come up with. Um, whereas people thinking it out carefully in advance, on the one hand, can make really cool tools that you wouldn't have come up with. But on the other hand, they are limiting other ones that might have happened. And that, um, you know, so, th so that's, so these kinds of issues, I think, um, aren't being explored very much. Returning to the topic that I had originally planned to talk to Ian about, I asked him about an idea that he wrote about five or six years ago. More specifically, the idea of epistemic self-determination. This might be a bit of a hard uh, transition, but I'm not great at transition. <laughs> but what you're talking about actually leads me to right, a topic that I had originally wanted to talk to you about, which is you've written a lot about epistemic self-determination, right? particularly in the context of food justice and environmental justice. Uh, and I think that's uh, a topic that's relevant to what we're talking now. So I invite you to you know, explain what epistemic self-determination is uh, to the audience. Right? What's your dinner party explanation for uh that concept. Sure. So, um, I mean, I don't get invited to dinner parties where people allow me to talk about stuff like that. But um, <laughs> if we imagine a dinner party where I have permission to uh, talk about uh, philosophy, um, yeah. 
so first of all, we have to talk about what self-determination is, right? So that's an ambiguous concept. Um, and often it's used in sort of like a nationalistic, like legalistic kind of standpoint. Um, but what I'm more interested in uh, when I'm thinking through these issues is uh, the way that self-determination is used by uh, a lot of activists and justice groups, particularly uh, food sovereignty activists. Um, and in that sense, it's just uh, the ability um, to... Uh, so it's focused on the survival, the flourishing, just arrangements of community, um, and for food justice activists viewed through a lens of food systems and their ability to produce their own food. So self-determination, like in this way, uh, it includes the the ability of a community to effectively engage in joint projects, to work together mm-hmm. to do something, uh, which are important to them, right? So their own freely chosen projects, um, and particularly ones that you know promote their sort of continued survival or their flourishing as a community. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's self-determination. And then epistemic self-determination is uh, the ability of a community to jointly determine, uh, you know, to decide on and engage in epistemic practices, so knowledge-producing practices uh, mm. in their community. So that can include things like um, methodologies for studying things and learning things for knowledge production, and like, but particularly evaluative assumptions, so ways that they uh, can decide uh, on, you know, they can judge facts they can uh build in their values into their into the system uh of evaluation now that when you say that like in that vague kind of way there's lots of it's pretty easy to um to misunderstand or to come up with what sound like counterexamples of things that would be bad so uh because you're like well value shouldn't be involved in people's knowledge production there's surely a right answer we should just listen to experts and learn it so if i was at a slightly less uh abstract dinner conversation, uh, dinner party where people did not want to talk in generalities. Uh, I would say things like like this. So uh, most people know the idea of type one and type two errors, right? So you can have, I, I said that, I, and now as soon as I said that, I'm like, I bet most people don't know that. Lots of people know. I think lots of you have heard it. Right. Uh, many people are like, which one's which? Yeah, right. Well, uh, fair enough. Listen, I, I switched those, I, those two up. But there's, there's an idea of you can have a false positive or a false negative, right? Mm. So you can... Uh, sometimes jump at a shadow thinking that it's a tiger, or you can sometimes miss tigers that are really there and get eaten by a tiger. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the only two options you're allowed to have. <laughs> you can be biased one way or the other. Uh, you're not allowed to say, ah, well, I simply won't make any errors. You know, I'll, I will only jump at tigers, which, you know, that'd be great. But you're not allowed to put that in. You're going to, any system uh, is going to be biased one way or the other. Mm-hmm. But it's not. There's no answer as to which one of those is better. Um, it depends on the situation, rather. You right. know, like you could make you can make arguments about why one is better in some cir- circumstances or others. Um, science is very happy to miss some tigers, to miss interesting things, rather than accidentally seeing tigers that aren't there. Right. right? Most scientific practice, for example. Um, on the other hand, if you go to a doctor, uh, they may well jump at tigers that aren't there. They'll say, "Well, just to be safe, I'm going to put you on." this medicine because there is a chance that you have this uh, disease. I can't prove it yet, uh, but if you did have it, that would be really bad if we didn't treat it early. So let's just start treating it, you know, and see what happens. Right. Uh, so it's, so there's, there's no like good way or bad way to look at that, but um, it is a decision that needs to be made. Uh, so if you look at uh, the EPA, when they look at environmental impact and when companies make environmental impact statements, they tend toward false negatives. Right. Uh, they, they tend toward um, thinking that, 
uh, you know, missing things that might be dangerous because they want to move forward. They want to get products out there that people can use, uh, even though that means that they're going to have to be recalled sometimes. Right. And, you know, that might be right, or it might be right for certain products and not others. Who knows? But uh, communities might have other assumptions. They might want to look at, they might want to be better safe than sorry. That might be the, the value that they have yeah. um, when they're evaluating whether or not to put some new kind of factory in their town. Um, you know, or they may say, look, we need the jobs, right? Um, although then, you know, we get into some deeper justice issues about uh, why some communities are in the position to say, well, we need the jobs and others uh, don't have to make that decision. Right. Um, but, you know, leaving that part aside for a minute, you know, so they, they can make different kinds of evaluative, different kind of values are built into that judgment. And uh, it isn't clear that one is right or wrong, but it is something that would need to be decided, you know, democratically, hear people out, see what what's important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, the, uh, the EPA, when they, a lot of the time, they're getting a little better about this, uh, they will look at environmental load of risk, and they will pick a person, like an average person, mm-hmm. right? So how much does an average person get exposed to? And sometimes the, the average person can be quite weighted, particularly when it's a corporate-funded impact statement. So the average person will be an adult male who spends most of their time out of the community because they drive to work and work somewhere else. So so their exposure is very low, right? Um, Well, you know, maybe you want to look at what the average person's exposed to. There's some, the word average sounds objective, I guess, to a lot of us, but, uh, you know, sounds good. But it's possible that a community would rather look at what is the effect on the most vulnerable, right? right? Uh, Or on children, because they are really concerned about that, right. uh, about cancer clusters among kids, um, you know, in Massachusetts in a famous study, or the elderly, right? Or people who participate in traditional food practices of fishing out of this local river mm-hmm. uh, because it's important to their culture. Um, all right. Well, you know, if you're going to be eating local fish, then obviously any environmental pathogen or any kind of harm in the environment is going to uh, be a lot more, uh, you're going to get a lot more exposure to it. So uh, those kinds of decisions need to be made too, right? And again, there isn't a right answer or a wrong answer, but you're going to want to, in certain circumstances, make different decisions. And that needs to be kind of democratic. That needs to include people's voices. They should have the ability to participate in it. And most of us are like, that's not a very controversial position that people should have some say in. um, I mean, you know, it's not a controversial opinion among good faith actors (laughs) in this, uh, that people people should have uh, some kind of, uh, you know, say in this. Um, but what I am arguing with epistemic self-determination is that uh, in order to have an effective say, part of that is not just polling some people in the community or whatever, right. but actually allowing them to come together and have a democratic process. Um, even if, and if they aren't, if they don't currently do that, if they aren't like a well functioning community, um, maybe giving the tools and helping to build up the ability of communities to engage in these kinds of questions, right? So having like lots of meetings well in advance of a decision, um, educating people on, a, on an important topic and building up capacities that'll outlive uh, this particular question so that they can continue to address other things that come up. Uh, that, that's, that actually should be the orientation that um, groups like the EPA or universities when they're interacting with communities should have rather than what's the minimum we can do to say we consulted some of the people who live near here. Yeah. Uh, so that is by that. See, this is why I'm not allowed to talk about these things at dinner parties. Cause by that point, like the food's cold, nobody's like, everybody's just been staring at me across the table for a while. <laughs> I, I, I would assume that, uh, you know, people would be interested enough that they might not mind that the food's sort of cold. 
Listening to Ian speak about epistemic self-determination made me think of something that many of my students have been noting lately. Specifically, that there's a difference between consulting and actually listening to communities. One can ask for someone's opinion, but still not in fact care about what they think. That being the case, I asked Ian about how he thought we might change the way we do things, so that marginalized communities might be better able to affect policy that has an impact on them. What we get now is there's this sort of empty consultation where like, yeah, we will ask you what you think, but then what you think isn't particularly important to our decision-making process, right? Like we just note it and then we might respond to what you say and why we've decided not to like follow uh, sort of the the guidance that's embedded in what you say. Yeah, well, it's, it's about power, right? I mean, right. there's a big difference between uh, democratic control and giving people – and w- so it's – there's an ambiguity in the word say that people are manipulating <laughs> or or accidentally not noticing, Let's it, to be charitable. Um, that a say – I can have a say in what happens in the sense that uh, my decision can uh, – affects what happens, right? I have power to affect the outcome. Um, but I can also have a say in the sense that I say something, you know, out loud <laughs> and, and someone else says, I have heard you say that. So you had a say, right. um, you know, and I mean, we're talking about environmental issues and food issues, but the same thing could be said about protests. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a big difference between, you know, people having a right to come into the street and protest and say, I'm mad. People say, okay, go home now. Thank you. We know you're yeah. mad. Cool. And now we're going to keep, and then, then we will decide what to do. And we'll take into account the fact that we heard you say that you're mad. Uh, that's right. quite different than, um, you know, actual democratic power. Right. Where it's, oh, you're mad. I should probably adjust what I'm doing. Let's figure out what I need to adjust. Well, or more so, we're mad. And so we are going to use power that we have to compel uh, the outcome to be different than it is now. Right. That's the situation you want to have is to empower uh, in an actual sense, not in a feel-good right. sense, but in a you actually have institutional power to uh, enact change. Yeah. So I guess the then the question is, what are your thoughts about what needs to be adjusted? Right. So like for those of us who are engaged or who see ourselves as engaged in the work of making positive change with our society within our society, what are the things that we need to be pushing for in terms of like changes when it comes to practices or policies? Yeah, I mean, that's not a real class. So uh, people that see themselves as doing good is too broad of an area, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the only thing I can say is look at your circumstances and situation around you and see what you can do, right? Uh, <laughs> but if you think about um, – so you have, to, you have to think about who's who's the person doing this, right. right? So there are people who are neighborhood activists who have very little power currently. What can they do? Well, they should be working to try to build up actual power. And there's a bunch of uh, – information about how to effectively organize uh, that people should look into. But uh, for, say, academics, right, to pick a a completely coincidental um, category that you and I both happen to belong to, um, that, you know, that that can be that that's a different sort of situation, because we have some institutional power uh, to do some things. Um, And so we have to look at ways to not merely consult with people that are being affected by whatever it is that we're doing, whatever kind of research project we're doing, mm-hmm. um, or proposal to expand the university or whatever it is. Uh, but actually giving people a say in the stronger sense, the ability to affect the outcome, uh, not in a, not via me, not by telling me what they think, and then I'm a good faith actor, so I'll listen to them, right. but that they actually have some way to do something. Um, think about ways that you can build in institutional 
control and power to uh, a wider group decided democratically, right. Rather than like picking somebody as like a token stand in kind of thing. Um, So, you know, that's important. And also again, I think that institutions like universities should imagine ways that they can become anchor institutions in their community. Uh, So a lot of universities see themselves uh, as serving the community around them to the extent that they even do see themselves doing that uh, by educating the young people who live there. Right. And that's only for residential schools, like the ones that you and I teach at. I don't think that people at Harvard worry about that at all. But, uh, you know, so you educate the people that live around you. But being an anchor institution can be much more than that. You can be a place that builds community epistemic capacities and other community capacities uh, for people around the university to solve their own problems um, and to tap into the resources that universities have and, and, and use those. Uh, in order to solve problems, you know, like there's a cool uh, project that happened in Europe that I don't think a lot of Americans know about uh, called Science Shops. Okay. And these were things uh, sponsored by universities primarily. Uh, also, the government sponsored some of them in some places because, uh, you know, they, they sponsor more cool projects like that <laughs> over there. But uh, the idea was that community groups could, if they wondered something, if they had a question, um, relevant to their interests, local to their interests, right. they could go to these science shops and get paired with researchers. And together, they could work together to think of a study that would s- answer that question. So, you know, maybe um, they want to test for mold in particular buildings, or maybe they think that um, the, you know, I'm just trying to pick like very, very different branches of science. Maybe they're, right. uh, maybe they were, they think that the uh, bus routes in their city um preferentially disadvantage some neighborhoods which are you know ethnic enclaves Mm. or maybe they think or maybe they wonder about the water quality uh of the river that's flowing through that that their kids splash in you know does that have an effect but nobody's tested it because it's not really an important river just a little like by stream that kids are splashing in right um or they think that uh educational outcomes from certain schools are uh you know people who graduate from the school aren't doing well you know there's lots of kinds of questions that people might have um and in order to get that uh, to get that question answered, they need to come together as a group. They need to wonder it. They can come to the science shop, and then the researcher can work with that community, bring in more people who might be interested in it, other people whose kids play near that river, that kind of thing, um, have multiple meetings as they design uh, a study to look into that. You know, not just say, okay, I'll take it from here, but continually work with this group. And then those people know each other and they've worked together to answer an interesting question that's relevant to their lives. um, And they're more likely to, you know, have that connection and share other sorts of stuff to notice things, to share symptoms with each other, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in ways that can then empower them literally to uh, be more effective in the future. So that's a really cool project. Uh, Participatory budgeting is sort of the same thing um, where like money is... uh, sort of given in a block and then communities, community groups uh, can propose ways to spend that money in their neighborhoods. Uh, again, you need to get several people together. That's kind of one rule for participatory budgeting. Like one person can't make a proposal. You have to bring in others. Right. And then they make like a sort of like a science fair presentation, like a, a, a threefold <laughs> folder <laughs> uh, where they talk about why it's important to have this capital investment, like why we need a streetlight here. And again, this would be a good time for a researcher to come in and do a traffic study to help them. But mm-hmm. anyway, uh, so they make these proposals and then other people in the community walk through, look at all the proposals and they vote. And whichever ones get the most votes get the money and they go down the list until they run out of money. Right. And the other people are given feedback to help resubmit next year. So again, 
uh, it's more likely to be relevant to community interests. It's more likely to embody what people are actually thinking about in the area. But it also forces you to know who your neighbors are, you know, if you want to participate in this and get that stoplight there to, yeah. uh, you know, listen to what other people's concerns are. Um, you know, that stoplight might be right in front of your house, but maybe other, maybe you want to modify that plan because it's not so much a stoplight problem as it is, I don't know, like, uh, where the school zone begins and ends kind of problem. Yeah. You know, so you can talk about, uh, talk about from other people's perspectives and again, sort of building that capacity to address local problems. We don't want, uh, people to see universities as an investment machine, right? So that you, um, pay a certain amount of money to go to university ever more every year, faster than inflation. Mm. But uh, that's okay, because you're going to be able to get a job when you graduate, which will make you more money over your lifetime than it costs you uh, in student loans, at least allegedly. Right. Right. And so it's this sort of very private, individualistic, kind of neoliberal, you know, financial decision about whether or not to go to college. And then once you're there, what to major in, um, you know, a lot of other decisions like that. So, you know, we, we know that that's not great. <laughs> it's, it's new. It's new. There's lots of different ways you can look at a university. That is not the only way to look at a university uh, education, what it's for. So I, God, I hope so as a philosopher. Uh, so, so there's that, right? But also, yeah. so we, we, we often think about that in terms of like the psychology of the students. But think about the people in the community around it, too. If this is some weird factory for producing college graduates, um, then you might have, you might think it's useful if you have kids, like you want your kids to be able to go to a factory that's near your house to get turned into this widget of college graduates, they can make more money, right? I mean, that's convenient. Right. Uh, so they don't have to go far away. They can live in your house. That'll save you some money. And also you can see them because you love them, right? But uh, right. if that's all university is, that's not a huge sort of buy-in from the community. And if in order to do that, in order to produce college graduates, most of whom aren't from the neighborhood, and w even if they are from the community, one thing that college graduates that widget does is get shipped off somewhere else, right? So they leave, uh, there's a brain drain. So, you know, yeah, you turn them into college graduates, but then they move away. If you don't have kids, this doesn't seem like a great deal for you. And if the university is then making a bunch of demands in terms of space, traffic, um, you know, all kinds of things that universities need to do to exist, you know, owning a bunch yeah. of big apartment buildings, that kind of thing. <clears throat> uh, you know, to the extent that that's, uh, happening, you're going to resent the university around you. So universities need to, uh, on self-interested grounds, as well as justice and ethics grounds, uh, yeah. be embedded in the community and show that we are actually, it's good for us to be around for the whole community, for every single person who lives here and for the group, which are two different things, um, independent of whether or not you have kids, right? Uh, that it's just, it's just good. Uh, we, there's lots of ways that we can help and make this place a better place. We've reached a spot that's a good natural conclusion for this episode. At this part of our conversation, Ian and I really changed topics. However, before I sign off, I want to review what I think are some of the core insights from Ian. One, that equity and sustainability work needs to be informed by self-determination. And two, that self-determination is about building systemic power, particularly the systemic power of marginalized communities. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, Please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth 
and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.